You are listening to episode 31 of the Unnecessary Nonsense Podcast, the podcast of two unqualified idiots rambling on sports topics they like to know nothing about for an indeterminate timeline. Brought to you this week by Learning Nothing, which is exactly what we learned watching most of the week two football games in the NFL. I'm Carlos Alcazar, and we're doing a solo pod this week as scheduling issues meant that Dave and myself couldn't quite be on the same page to be able to record at the same time. So he'll be back next week, and most likely it'll be a pretentious cross-country running report in the usual spiel. But well, since it's just myself, we'll do a little bit of a streamlined version of the podcast, and I'll talk about a couple of things that happened in week two, and also a little bit update on some of the stuff that uh, was referenced already in last week's episode. And a little add-on that I included to last week's episode since that all came down right after the podcast was recorded... There really hasn't been that much on the Antonio Brown situation other than the fact that Antonio Brown made his debut with the New England Patriots. And that was really the only thing I could have added between the the end of last week's episode and this one. But I already reiterated in that little add-on right there that I didn't think it was a good idea for the Patriots to do it. Obviously, they've gone ahead and done it. And he's managed to avoid the wrath of the commissioner's exemption list. But that doesn't mean he can't in the future. And uh, from what we understand currently, the NFL is looking at interviewing the accuser on Monday, and that's when they're going to get a little bit more information. The only thing I'll add here is, like I said, I think in the long run, the Patriots may regret it. Obviously, having another talented player is not a bad thing, but as I'll get to once, once I get into kind of the main topic of week two games and kind of what we learned or really didn't learn, the Patriots are already really, really good. And I think that's one of the few takeaways that we have from the early part of the season is that reality is they don't need Antonio Brown. So he's just kind of an asset to have in case. But at the same time, uh, he can he can be present quite the distraction under the wrong circumstances. And that's really the question that everyone has as far as what the Antonio Brown actually brings to the table. Does his production or the possible production offset the potential distraction and also depending to see what happens? The fact that it's a civil matter right now doesn't mean it couldn't translate into criminal matter. But on that point, as I said earlier, we're not going to legislate the guilt or innocence of Antonio Brown on the podcast. Right now, it's a he said, she said thing. And like I said before, I don't really care if Antonio Brown is guilty or innocent or any of that. It doesn't make any difference. My point last week and my point that I hold this week is that Antonio Brown right now is a magnet for controversy and issues. He brings a lot of them on himself with the people he associates with and the situation he leaves himself in. Even if you believe and take Antonio Brown's stance that he's just being extorted for money, There's a lot of rich football players out there, and not all of them are being extorted for money. Antonio Brown right now is in the process of courting a lot of issues. The only other thing that I think came out uh, during the course of this week was that apparently Antonio Brown and his accuser have been in negotiation for months over a potential settlement. And in the end, Antonio Brown, for whatever reason, wasn't able to come to terms or didn't agree to whatever terms were, were broached to him. So it kind of lingered on and continued on and on until finally it became public. It's one of those things where, like I said before, whether he's guilty or innocent or whatever the case is, it just demonstrates a lack of judgment. And what demonstrates a lack of character is not so much the fact that he has a, you know, a pending court case and everything happening. What really demonstrates a lack of character is that he didn't give any warning or you know, information to either the Oakland Raiders or the New England Patriots, because apparently the the story goes that neither one of them were aware of it until it became known by everybody. And that's just not a good look. That that lack of disclosure is, that's good, that goes beyond the actual event itself. Like I said, guilty or innocent, the, the teams have a right to know that there could be something coming down the pipeline that they're then going to have to try to defend or deal with or whatever the case may be. And it puts the Players Association in a weird position. And that's kind of the reason why I think the... Uh, the commissioner's, commissioner's office didn't bother to put him on the exempt list is that 
normally they like to have some a player in some kind of a criminal proceeding before they bother to do that. Because right now the Players Association and the Commissioner's Office are sitting there in kind of a staring match. The Commissioner doesn't want to put him on the exempt list because then the Players Association is basically going to have to defend him automatically, just on principle and to avoid a precedence. Because if you really think about it from the Players Association perspective, I don't think they really care about Antonio Brown one way or the other. It's not about him. It's about the fact that if you allow him to be put onto that exempt list before there's been any kind of a criminal proceeding, it would set a bad precedent where now another player who is accused of anything, whether there is anything going on in the courts or not, could potentially be put on that exempt list or you know, they could exempt some of his money or whatever the case may be. In this case, if you're on the exempt list, I believe you still get paid. But at the same time, you are removed from the equation, which is probably something that the commissioner's office and Roger Goodell would love to have done, just because they don't want to be stuck in the Ray Rice situation where it comes off that they went soft on a really serious accusation or serious issue. And then in the Ray Rice case, a video comes out basically confirming everything everybody thought. It's one thing when it's words. It's another thing when you actually can see it. Once you can see it, then public opinion is already dead set against you. And the NFL already had a lot of trouble during that Ray Rice situation, and they want to avoid that. But at the same time, they don't want to induce the Players Association to have to then defend Antonio Brown, which I'm sure they don't really want to do, but they will if they're required to. So Antonio Brown has basically put a lot of groups into this situation where nobody really wants to touch him with a 10 and a half foot pole, but they're just required to. The only team that, the only people that really want to deal with Antonio Brown right now are the New England Patriots just because he is still useful to them on the football field. We'll see in coming weeks how useful he ends up being and how well he integrates into the offense, but he did get his first touchdown as a New England Patriot in uh, this Sunday's game. Again, we'll see kind of how he uh, works with Tom Brady and the rest of the team, but in theory, that structure should be able to get whatever it is you can get out of Antonio Brown, assuming he doesn't revert back to his old patterns and do something crazy. Like I said, I still wouldn't touch him with a 10 and a half foot pole, but that's on the Patriots and they'll have to figure that out for themselves. With all that said, there's a couple of other uh, items before I get into talking about a little more about week two. One of them is that now based on an injury that was kind of lingering on there with Mike Trout, he's going to be having surgery and that will put him out, surgery on his foot, and that'll be putting him out for the rest of the season. So that's really kind of unfortunate because this was kind of gearing up almost to be a potential Mike Trout AL MVP type season. And it still might be, just depending on how the rest of the American League responds, you know, this late, about midway through September. But at the same time, it kind of ends a season that was primed. It, it felt like this was going to be a year that he could probably crack the 50 home run plateau for the first time and put together the first signature season. One thing that I've talked about with Mike Trout before, and I won't go too much into today, but I definitely want to talk about it more in the future, is that Mike Trout is fascinating to me in the sense that he is the consensus best player in Major League Baseball, and I have no issue with that. But at the same time, I feel like it's hard for me to look at him in that manner. He's obviously a multi-time MVP, and this would potentially be another MVP season for him. And at this age that he's at right now, I think he's about 27 or 28, it's, it's a historic kind of start to his career. But at the same time, it's one of those things where this would have been the signature season, so to speak, and that's kind of my one thing about Mike Trout that has always been a little odd to me, because the reality is, as good as he's been, it hasn't translated into wins for the Angels. So from the most valuable player perspective like that, like, you know, you can talk about events, metrics and war and all that, but it's like, who cares if your team doesn't make the playoffs or doesn't do anything if they manage to get there? And in his career, they haven't really done anything with him. So it hasn't helped. Now, that's not entirely his fault. I don't want to be unfair because at the end of the day, you can have a great player who plays extremely well and then the team is just bad around them or they've hamstrung themselves with bad salaries and things like Albert Pujol's salary is kind of an albatross around that team right now. But at the same time, Anaheim spent a lot of money. It's not like they can't reach back into the, into the depths of the pocket and pull more money out if that's what's required. 
I don't know if that's what they want to do, but they could do that. The point is that the Mike Trout success has not led to on-field success for the team as a whole and the franchise. That isn't entirely his fault, as I said, but at the same time, it, it kind of takes away a little bit of the credence from that piece of it. And at the same time, it's one of those things where a lot of what Mike Trout's things are is that he's one of the youngest to be at this statistical milestone or this statistical milestone. And that's all awesome, but it, it just seems to be more the product of just tremendous consistency, which in itself is admirable and something that you can look up to in our, and can be impressed by. But at the same time, it's not like I've, ever, I've never seen, I've seen plays, but I've never seen like a season that I can look at in Mike Trout's career where I'm like, oh man, that's it right there. That's the uh, 60 home run Babe Ruth year or the 61 home run Roger Maris year or just a year that stands out that's the magical season where all the pieces came together for them. Or even a more recent example, the Miguel Cabrera triple crown year. That's a triple crown year. Batting title, home run title, RBI title. That's a sick, if Miguel Cabrera's career ended right now, he's pretty much in the Hall of Fame based on his entire accumulation of all-time great statistics. He's up there in the in the 400-plus home runs. I don't have the numbers directly in front of me. But the point is that Miguel Cabrera's career is kind of already made. And that Triple Crown season, in an era where you just don't get that, and it's been ye- and it's been decades since anybody else has touched the Triple Crown, that is tremendous. And he's a multi-time bat, and he has multiple batting titles. So it's not like Miguel Cabrera is a one-trick pony. He was a guy who could hit for average and power, and he did it for year after year after year. Again, the consistency, but also these years that would just pop off the page and just blow your mind. And if you want to look at, you know, an incredible start to a career, I'll offer you another counterexample on his own team. Go go back and look at Albert Pujols from his St. Louis Cardinals years. Just the St. Louis Cardinals years from the first season of his career until his last season in St. Louis. When you get a chance, go look that up. Those are frightening statistics scary. They come off the page. They're incredible. And at this point is at this point that Albert Pujols is in the latter stages of his career, he is chasing the all-time guys. He had a he had actually had a pretty good game today and now he's at uh, I believe 2071 RBIs. He's four behind Cap Anson who has 2075 RBIs. Those are the cream of the crop, the top 5 all-time in RBIs. Anytime you're in that elite elite of the elite, it's incredible because you can't get to that statistic without having the consistency and being able to do it year after year after year. And Albert Pujols has been in decline for probably about five years, which tells you maybe even more if we're being completely honest. But let's say five years. That tells you how incredible the run was leading up to that point where even in years and years of decline, he is still right up there and still moving closer, ever closer to those all-time numbers. So, like I said, I'm not taking anything away from Mike Trout, and it is unfortunate that he's done for this season, but I'm going to be interested to see how this goes going forward, because one of the comparisons I always see to him is that he is like this generation's Mickey Mantle. Well, I'll be interested to see if that's true, because Mickey Mantle got had a catastrophic injury in 1951 during the World Series, which was an injury that kind of hung, hung with him the rest of his career, and likely took away some of his speed, which is one of the things that he was uh, noted for when he was in the minors and coming up that people were excited about. He still had tremendous athleticism, tremendous power, and obviously all-time great uh, you know, capabilities. But at the same time, he was still diminished. As incredible as that is, he, we can say definitively that he never got to be as great 
an all-time player as he could have become because of those early injuries, the impact they had on him, and then his own choice, and then his own addiction issues, where he basically drank himself out of the league. Where by the time he was in his mid thirties, he was washed up. That shouldn't have happened. And if he had had more years, he would have been right up there at the top of the echelon. So if we're comparing Mike Trout to uh, Mickey Mantle, well, Mike Trout has a ways to go because Mickey Mantle was not 100% right from the start. And he was still able to fashion that kind of an incredible career. That isn't to say Mike Trout can't, but it's going to be interesting because this is a major setback for him uh, to finish off this season. And hopefully he'll heal up well and he'll come back next year and kind of continue from where he left off. That would be my expectation, and we'll see how that goes. We'll see what kind of the nature of the injury and if uh, and if it's something that lingers with him or if he's still able to do kind of what he was doing when he comes back. With all that said, best wishes to Mike Trout and a speedy recovery. Now, with all that done, let's talk about week two in the National Football League. Kind of what I alluded to right at the beginning of the episode, week two was interesting in the sense that we learned kind of nothing. And it's not so much that we learned nothing. It's just that a lot of the information we got has mitigating circumstances and things that kind of leave you to go with, how much stock should I put into this? Uh, I'll give you a simple example. The Packers are 2-0. And in week one, their defense looked tremendous. But at the same time, the Chicago Bears offense looked horrific. So you have to kind of ask yourself, like, does that mean the defense was good, that good, that it made them look that bad? Or is the Chicago offense under Mitchell Trubisky that bad? And then, you know, the Packers just kind of took advantage of it. Because the Packers defense has improved. They've got better personnel. But I don't know if that necessarily translates into being like a great defense. So going into this week, you were playing a divisional opponent. You're playing the Minnesota Vikings. So presumably this is a better test. This is where you can see a little bit more. And I don't know what we really learned because the Packers got up to a 21-0 lead. So at that point, this is the question you ask yourself. You say, okay, 21-0 lead, and we're talking about how great their defense is. Well, at that point, it should be a wash. They should be on their way to a route. Well, that isn't what happened. The Packers did not score a single additional point. They did win the game. But they basically allowed Minnesota to come back into the game. Now, my question becomes, was it that the defense was able to bend but not break? Or was it a case that Minnesota just didn't have enough firepower? They had a little bit of firepower to be able to kind of work themselves back into the game. But at the same time, not enough. Again, we're back to, you took on Mitchell Trubisky, and then you took off against the team who basically spotted you 21 points. So now... I don't have enough information to be able to say definitively that as a 2-0 team, I'm confident in the Packers team that I root for. I can't say that definitively. So I don't know where Minnesota's at. And Chicago managed to squeak out a victory barely. You know, they, they reached, the Denver was able to grab defeat from the jaws of victory and kind of a ticky-tack penalty on Nick Chubb was able to extend the game and just allow just enough yards for Mitchell Trubisky to be able to hit a pass and get the timeout with a second left in the game to be able to set up the game-winning field goal. And it wasn't an easy, it wasn't a chip shot. I believe it was a 52-yarder. So Chicago got out of there at 1-1, one and one, and Denver is now 0-2 in the Joe Flacco era. Is that completely their fault? Not necessarily, but at the same time, it's not like Denver lit it up either. So the Joe Flacco era has not gotten off to a great start. But once again, what are we looking at? We still don't know. So now staying in the AFC, we've got the Pittsburgh Steelers, who got shellacked by the New England Patriots in week one, got absolutely decimated in every way, couldn't do anything offensively, got crushed defensively, just could do nothing, nothing whatsoever. And in this game, they end up losing 
Ben Roethlisberger into the game. So all of a sudden, now you get to put in the rookie, Mason Rudolph, who was able to show a little bit. You know, he was able to he was able to accomplish something. But there was also a little bit of an injury to James Conner as well. So now Pittsburgh Steelers are starting to rack up injuries, but they were able to make it competitive. In the end, they ba- they barely missed out on uh, being able to catch up to Seattle. And Seattle was barely able to hang on to win that game. So we're back kind of to square one here. Now, we've kind of completely have to change the dynamic. So now, in the last year, they've lost Le'Veon Bell. They've lost Antonio Brown. And right now, Ben Roethlisberger has some kind of an injury. We'll kind of have to see what that looks like. And now, Mason Rudolph is your starting quarterback at the moment, you know, depending on what happens with with Roethlisberger. And James Conner is a little bit dinged up. Again, we'll see what that injury entails. But the point is that now, where are you if you're Pittsburgh? You missed out, and now you're 0-2. But at the same time, you know, you looked a lot better in Game 2 against the game Seattle team. Seattle really wasn't able to put you away, but at the same time, you were not in a great position, and now you have your rookie quarterback who may have to take over. So the question is going to be what that team's going to look like going forward and what they're going to be able to do to adjust and adapt. So for Mike Tomlin, this could end up being a very challenging situation because you look terrible in Week 1, you didn't look that great for most of Week 2, and now you have to kind of work with a completely different set of personnel. That's going to have a major impact. The Patriots just rolled on and destroyed Miami. Not surprisingly, because Miami is terrible. The The situation there is you don't even know what you need to do. Fitzpatrick just, I believe he threw two pick sixes. He, like, he was terrible in every way they could possibly be terrible. He got thrashed. And then Josh Rosen got in there a little bit, but it's not like he was going to be in a position to do that much better. Miami's just a bad team. Anybody who plays Miami, your stats are going to look amazing. But to be fair, the Patriots look great against Pittsburgh in week one. From the Patriots' perspective, Patriots are the only team that I can say definitively looks like a great team in the AFC. You can also say that a little bit about um, Kansas City, but they're not without their own flaws. But they're definitely a top-tier team. Pittsburgh is kind of out of the running right now. And also, they've got some injury issues that they're going to have to figure out. And we're going to have to see how that's going to impact them. But right now, the definitive favorites in the AFC are Kansas City and New England, which is not surprising because I think a lot of people have them there right at the very end in the AFC. But going to the other side of the equation now, the only team that look, has looked consistently good has been the Dallas Cowboys. The question then is, yeah, okay, you look good, but you look good against the New York Giants and then the Washington Redskins. How good are you? Offensively, they've got the weapons, and they look good from that perspective. But it's but it, we're, we're kind of in the same issue as a lot of these. Since there's a lot of teams that are kind of mediocre, kind of hanging around in that middle zone, we have a lot of these situations where a lot of these teams really look bad. So, the, so we'll have these lopsided things. And that's why I mentioned the Miami thing with uh, New England. It's like, yeah, New England crushed them. And you know what? Baltimore crushed them the week before that and crushed them even worse. But then at the same time, you know, Baltimore went and played against Arizona, and that was a more competitive game. And Arizona isn't really supposed to be that good either. And they were getting destroyed by Detroit, who was able to, you know, leave Arizona and let them back into the game. So what does that say about Detroit? What does that say about Arizona? What does that say about Baltimore? Now, Baltimore did win. They've gone to 2-0, and and they've still shown some good flashes and good signs for that team. Lamar Jackson continues his progression, and he's developing. And in this game, he was able to do a little bit more running. So now you get to see a little more of that balance, and he's being more of a dual threat, which is excellent from the Baltimore perspective. Mark Andrews is emerging as a you know a great a great target for Lamar Jackson, which is going to be a good thing for them going forward. And Hollywood Brown is also looking fantastic, and they're starting to you know build him into that offense. He's he's showing some highlight reel skills. 
And as you go along and Lamar Jackson keeps developing his passing, that's going to be incredibly important. Having a Mark Andrews there as a potential safety blanket. So Mark Andrews can be his Jason Witten-style player. He can be a safety blanket. He's, they're using the tight ends effectively. And then Hollywood Brown can be your home run hitter. And then you can feature him in different parts of the offense as well. So you've got pieces there that make Baltimore look interesting. So I would say maybe if you want to almost put maybe a third team in there, at least for the moment, I like what Baltimore's doing. At least they're showing some good forward progression. But again, they're not play, they didn't play a murderer's row. They played Miami and then Arizona in their first two games. So again, now I'm, I'm left going like, let me see week three. Let me see week four. Let me see a few more weeks. New England will give them the benefit of the doubt because they've been consistently good for so long. But at the same time, I don't expect them to go and beat people by 40 or 30 every game. But I do expect them to be highly competitive. I do expect them to win a ton of games in the AFC because right now nobody's really that good. Now you've got other teams that are also kind of starting to make a little bit of stake. The Buffalo Bills are 2-0. Again, what does that mean? You know, they beat the New York Jets, who now have their quarterback out with mono and really looked kind of bad in the game where they were winning and they let Buffalo back into that game. And then they played the New York football giants who have looked terrible in general. And, you know, the, the countdown is on until Daniel Jones takes over from Eli Manning. It's a bad sign when everybody and their brother is looking at your Hall of Fame quarterback because more than likely Eli Manning will get to the Hall of Fame. Two Super Bowl rings, and he's got enough career statistics that I would find it very difficult that he would not get in there. I'm confident he'll be, there'll be two Manning brothers in the Hall of Fame when it's all said and done. But the point is that everybody's looking at the Hall of Fame quarterback and saying, like, could you please just go away? Could you please just leave? And let's just get the other guy in there so we can start working with Saquon and see what you can do. Because Saquon Barkley is still great, and he's being great. But that's about all they've got going for that team right now. So the New York Giants are not really a team that I would worry about if you're playing them. And that's kind of the problem is that, okay, so the Buffalo Bills the Buffalo Bills went 2-0 and in that stadium in consecutive weeks against the New York Jets and the New York Giants. So they swept that little uh, series with the other New York team base teams. But at the same time, what does that actually mean? It means that I like some of the stuff I'm seeing from Josh Allen. It means I like that the team is being scrappy, but it doesn't necessarily mean the team is good. And that's, again, kind of the problem with a lot of these matchups and the way things are going. The more interesting question that I have now going into the games that still haven't happened yet, as I'm recording right now, I'm watching the Sunday Nighter, but it hasn't happened yet. It's for Monday Night Football. You're going to have the Cleveland Browns there. The problem is the marquee, you know, I I won't say marquee. That's probably not fair. But the interesting matchup that was going to be Sam Darnold versus, uh, you know, Baker Mayfield and those two teams facing off against each other is obviously lost a lot of its luster. Cleveland looked terrible in week one. The Jets looked pretty bad in week one. And obviously Sam Darnold's is out with mono so he's not going to be in the game Le'Veon Bell got dinged up a little bit and Cleveland looked bad so the question is okay so for Monday Night Football what are we going to see I expect to see Cleveland win I expect to see them have some flashes that are going to make people think oh well you know Cleveland's back but they're playing the Jets and they're playing a diminished Jets team that now has to kind of make things work they have to figure out a way and It's unfortunate because we kind of wanted to see if this was going to be the year that Sam Darnold would have a little bit more development, if it was an opportunity for him to to elevate himself to that next level. He had Le'Veon Bell, and there were, you know, there were high hopes comparatively to New York Jets fans. And we're not going to see it this season. It doesn't mean, you know, Sam Darnold isn't out for the year. You know, he's not necessarily, but it's going to be hard to say when he comes back. And when he comes back, it's going to be hard to say what kind of condition he's going to be in. They have to take that kind of a condition seriously enough to make sure that he's healthy when he comes back. But in the meantime, you can pretty much, you know, scratch him out of the picture. But again, Cleveland now themselves have an opportunity to rebound. But the problem is when you, if, if and when they do, which I expect they will, what does that actually mean? You play the Jets. 
yeah, you play them in a high-profile Monday Night Football game, but you played the Jets. And the Jets right now are a diminished team at best. And they weren't that great last year either. It doesn't really mean that much, but it can be a launching off point, I suppose. You, you're going to have to step up your game somewhere. And I guess that's a good time as any to see that. Now, saving probably the most compelling and interesting storyline coming out of week one so far, obviously, there's still a couple of games left. Sunday Nighter is happening right now, and then Monday is going to happen. But the most interesting storyline now coming out in terms of what does this mean going forward came out of the uh, New Orleans Saints and Los Angeles Rams rematch from last year's NFC Championship. The real crux of it was Drew Brees going out with a hand injury when Aaron Donald kind of smacked his hand while trying to knock the football out of the air that Drew Brees had just let go and gotten out of his hand. The question is now, what is the extent of the injury? How bad is it? Does it throw off, you know, Drew Brees going forward? Is he going to be available for next week? How long is he going to be out for, if at all? Teddy Bridgewater came in, and he immediately was getting hammered. You know, he wasn't able to really get anything going. That offense became completely anemic. Drew Brees was only in there for a couple of series, but he didn't really get anywhere as far as... um, as far as being able to generate much offense, but it was only a couple of series, so I wouldn't put too much stock in that. But at the same time, Teddy Bridgewater, I think, is a capable backup quarterback there. And they brought him back for a reason. But the problem is then, if that's the case, and they do need him back again next week, they didn't show very much. With the all with the, all the offensive weapons that they have, they looked absolutely awful against the Los Angeles Rams, who have not looked that impressive. I didn't really think that that was as much a reflection on the Rams being that stout Uh, defensively as much as the Saints just, I guess, didn't have a game plan for if Drew Brees was out of the game. They weren't able to adapt. They weren't able to create anything, and they got beaten fairly easily. That's a big deal because that really does affect the balance of power in the NFC because, as I said, the Cowboys were really the team that looked probably the best out of the NFC right now. But again, we need to see see them play more opponents, really. But with the Saints, they didn't really set the world on fire in Week 1. And you would have expected them to be up for this game. And it would have been interesting to see them at full strength and see if they were able to give the Rams more of a challenge. The problem is now with Drew Brees potentially out, this week we probably we may have lost both Roethlisberger and Brees. And we don't know what the extent of those injuries are and how long that would be. That's problematic. That's a huge issue. And that's going to affect the Saints because if their offense is going to look as anemic with Teddy Bridgewater as it did for the rest of that game, That's not a good thing, you know, I'm not going to write them off in week two, but at the same time, if they look that bad going forward, we're going to be in a position a couple of weeks to be able to write them off. And that's really unfortunate because that NFC then becomes a lot clearer path because nobody else is really in a position to take it over and dominate it, per se. One more that I guess I'll toss in here as kind of a little uh, sprinkling as well is that the 49ers are 2-0 and they put up at least 30 points both games, including over 40 in in today's matchup. Again, same issue as some of these other ones. I need a bigger sample size because... I have to look at your opposition, and I really wasn't that impressed with who they were playing, but with all that said, full value, 2-0 is 2-0. You can't take it away, and I'm not going to. Questions will continue. We have to see more now to understand exactly what it is we're looking at, and that's really the takeaway from week two. Week one is don't overreact. I said it partially in jest last week, but the truth is I mean it. Week one, you don't want to overreact to what you see. Week two, you kind of say the same thing, but with week two, you kind of want to see a little bit of progression. You want to see maybe teams going in. In this case, the matchups made it really hard to understand what we were seeing. A lot of the outcomes were not surprising, but at the same time, there were injuries that have happened and things that have thrown complete wrenches into the whole works. So now looking at week three, it's it's a completely different proposition now thinking about it the way it was you know, a couple hours ago. So I'm going to leave it at that. 
that's kind of my thoughts on week two so far. Uh, we'll come back with a regular episode next week where we we'll probably will talk a little bit about what we're seeing and looking forward to in week three. I think I'm going to kind of want to go back to the drawing board and see based on what happened this week and see what I think, what impact that might have. And then I do want to talk a little bit more about some baseball now that we're headed into the latter part of September. We're, I am getting kind of excited about it, but I don't think we've given it enough coverage or discussion on the podcast. So I'd like to do a little more of that. With that said, thank you as always for watching. I'll do some quickly shameless plugs just to get us out of here. So on the Instagram, it's at Unnecessary Podcast. On Twitter, it's at Unnecessary underscore pod. Our site is unnecessarypod.podbean.com. And on YouTube, you can find archived versions of all the podcasts that we have, including an animated static image of our faces at Unnecessary Nonsense Podcast. You type it out into YouTube, you will find it. And if we've ever got any breaking news or any kind of things that come up, like the Antonio Brown thing I did a little bit earlier, we can discuss them on the YouTube channel. Occasionally, if it's really serious like the Antonio Brown thing, it'll also be in the podcast feed, but I try not to spam you guys with it. So if you do subscribe to the podcast, I'm not going to ram these things down your throat. On the YouTube channel, though, you will get a little bit more content depending on what's going on. So just bear that in mind. It's sometimes good just to subscribe to it if you want to check out some stuff beyond what we talk about on the podcast once a week. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you on the next episode of the Unnecessary Nonsense Podcast.